<laughs> what happened this month? Um... Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Amy McIntosh, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. I'm Lauren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water Waste Digest. Okay. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is November. And it is almost Thanksgiving it is for almost us. Thanksgiving. So. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of November. Wow. Um, I oh. think we wanted to open with these One Water Awards that we heard about. Yes. yes. They um, they were awarded by the Jersey Waterworks. So these are all projects in New Jersey, specifically. Mm. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and there's quite a few of them, so that's cool. Um, but these projects, they're called One Water Awards. So here we are again seeing this pop up. And I wonder if New Jersey awarded these like awards just within their state will mean that more states will start recognizing this on their level too or cities will start recognizing it on their level mm-hmm. um because i mean one of them is, is a green infrastructure project and i, I like that one because it, it is in the academic slash nonprofit category so clearly it was mm-hmm. like it was done with the intent of helping out the community it was not like mm-hmm. this was someone saw this as as an opportunity to better communities and it makes and it makes me really kind of curious a little bit more about that specific project and like how did they get their communities involved? Because I'm sure that that was a big part of it. It's like, how how low to the ground did this get? You know, yeah. like, did they have people who lived in these neighborhoods keeping, like, mm-hmm. maintaining the, those properties and those parks and stuff like that? Was it a city-level thing? You know, mm-hmm. just how low to the ground did that get? And, like, what kind of input did they get? Because yeah. I'm, I'm imagining that, I mean, this is, like, 49 green infrastructure projects. That's a lot of them. And there's yeah. a lot of coordination that would go in right. and be involved in that. That's that really is. impressive. That's a lot. And there was another project in here that was pretty cool, and it was um, the private category, um, and it's a commercial-scale indoor farming facility, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, I mean, I know it's the One Water Award, so there's a lot of different aspects to it that I think applies to different areas of water. First of all, it's conservation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, they don't use as much water because they're able to kind of regulate where it all goes. Um, there's no runoff, so there's no pollution with fertilizers or anything. Um, which is something we see a lot of. Yeah, which is not regulated right. in any way. So to eliminate that is huge. Um, this little write-up about it says that the um, 95% of the greens for the United States $7 billion salad industry, which... <sighs> Who knew? Um, (laughs) Are grown in California and Arizona, um, resulting in carbon emissions and food waste when the packages are shipped nationwide, which is like one thing, but also those two states are hot and have, Mm -hmm. you know, water scarcity. So using all that water for this industry, this $7 billion salad industry is... Well, I don't want to derail too much, but on that topic... um, (laughs) I one time, this is funny, I one time saw on a bus in Chicago a sign that said one egg takes, I think, I don't remember even how many, but a few gallons of water to process. So if you throw away one egg, you're throwing away a bunch of water also. Mm -hmm. And then um, also this summer, the Trader Joe's that I shop at, 
shout out to Trader Joe's. <laughs> they, they had problems with their refrigeration systems, and because of um, FDA, they had to throw away all the food in their refrigerators. That's crazy. Like, even produce, like, even salad and, like, spinach and a lettuce that, I mean, it doesn't need to be refrigerated, technically. Mm-hmm. It's a vegetable. But everything had to be thrown away, mm-hmm. no matter what. And think about all the water it took to process that. Mm-hmm. Well, th- think about how much, how much of that kind of produce gets thrown away at a normal grocery store oh, right. that has zero problems. Yeah, that's so true. Like there, there's a reason that there's like a whole that, that there's a whole group of people in that freaking movement. Yeah, right? like, yeah. There's a ton of food waste that there like is. also is like indirectly water yeah. waste. I mean, there's definitely a pallor over the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Everyone is very upset about it. Not just the food waste, but the but I'm thinking about the water behind it too, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I have a lot of guilt about that anytime <laughs> I throw away food. Well, I think about that because I um, subscribe to Imperfect Produce, oh, yeah. which I don't think they have everywhere, but essentially they collect produce that would be thrown away by normal grocery stores for being too small or too big or mm-hmm. too... Shape yeah, yeah, weird. You get some weird shapes. Um, <laughs> and it's perfectly good food but these stores just throw it away because it looks weird yeah or they have too much of it and they just like don't sell it so yeah so i mean this i think this indoor farming thing is kind of a good model Mm -hmm. that i'm actually you know i read this and i was like have i even like i feel like i've never heard of people Mm -hmm. doing this but it just seems like such an obvious solution that i don't know why we don't see it more Mm -hmm. well I i think in illinois when they when they finally when they legalized marijuana for medical use, there were some like laws instituted to allow for like the um, like farming of it, mm-hmm. and a lot of the facilities that were built were built with that in mind. Yeah. They were built with this like yeah. totally covered, totally insulated, because everyone's like worried about yeah. so many things about yeah. like, oh what happens with the fertilizer there, but then also like what happens with a strong gust of wind? Does that push yeah. things around? And then yeah. you know, so the I think that. That, that may have been, like, maybe a catalyst or, like, yeah. other agricultural groups being, like, can we also use this type of thing for us? And I, th- I think the point of the runoff and the nutrient loading is, like, really interesting because then it's, like, how, how could that impact, like, areas like um, like Ohio and, and uh, the Great Lakes? Mm-hmm. And, like, could it, could it impact things in, in, uh, in Florida with, like, Okeechobee and whatnot yeah. where there's, like, the algal bloom issues? Is this, is this a model that can be used to fix some of those problems or is regulation a better direction yeah and well and also this farm is in newark so it's not mm-hmm. like a rural agricultural yeah. place yeah. it's a, an urban food desert mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's not like it's yeah. removing runoff that would have gone in there anyway because it's there's nowhere to farm there right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah anyway I- interesting nonetheless yeah, <laughs> yeah. cool cool well i think we also want to take you know, it's the end of the year. We want to take it, this opportunity to talk a, a little bit separately, um, each of us, about the state of our respective water industry sectors. Um, uh, who wants to start? I, I suppose I could. Okay. Um, there were a couple things that I found particularly interesting. I should note that um, so we, we sent out this survey, and a total of 98 completed the entire thing. Some of the questions had more people complete them than others. so. Some are, have a little bit stronger of a um, resiliency to statistical anomaly. So um, the, the main thing that I wanted to, to, to touch on, though, was um, 
the, the age of people in the industry. So uh, there were 189 people that responded to the, the age range question, um, and like 65% of the WWD industry is 50 years old and older, according to this survey. Mm. Like, I mean, I think it's probably more representative of the people who responded to this question, but it is does give an indication that the industry is on the on the higher yeah. end, end of living, and we all know. I think everyone kind of knows that already because it's already a discussion topic. Um, but it's also interesting to pair that with the job titles and like the the positions that people are holding. So, in this uh, in the survey, we also had I also had like thirty three percent of the um, of the people who responded are in operations. So like, it could also be that just if you're in operations, you are more likely to be that age mm-hmm. than than not. Yeah. But it still it runs into the same question: what happens during retirement? In the next, I mean, you're talking about the next decade. Yeah. Like, more than half of people are going to be retiring. Like, it, I, it's probably closer to forty percent to fifty percent. Mm-hmm. But still, that's a lot of people. And um, I ended up talking to some um, to the San Francisco Public Utilities. Commission, they have they've already instituted several programs dedicated to alleviating this problem in the future. So like they work with local schools in San Francisco. They have like a K through twelve program. So from K through four, they introduce them to like this is how you interact with utilities, water utilities, electric utilities, all this kind of thing, and kind of like show them about like what this means and, and whatnot. And then in middle school, they really focus on the STEM aspect mm-hmm. of things, trying to get kids more interested in science, technology, engineering, and math. And then in high school, they have internship programs. And over the summer, they intern 1,400 kids wow. in public utilities in San Francisco to get them to understand just the breadth of options there are yeah. for, for working there. <laughs> you don't have to be a guy who's going to be a Dig, digging in the ditch mm-hmm. like but not not that that's a bad job per se mm-hmm. you could be an operations guy you could be a skater a guy who works on the skater systems um so that just show, highlighting the breadth of stuff yeah. is like really important to them but that that became like a really big part of what i wrote about this year for my state of the industry report because i do see that as being an important thing to be discussing and developing plans for and I, I, th- I think that that was like really interesting. And then the other, the other thing that was also really cool was um, the, the plans for new construction was like really, really low. So like 30, maybe 40%. Mm-hmm. But then the plans to upgrade or maintain current infrastructure was like 70, 70% or something like that. So while people are not purchasing new, brand mm-hmm. new facilities, they mm-hmm. are purchasing new equipment for old facilities. Yeah. So there's a very big market for that right now, which kind of makes sense given infrastructure funding and mm-hmm. kind of where things are, where things were for most of the year until now too. So. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, can I jump in? Yeah. Well, on the stormwater side, there's also concern about staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a lot of people <laughs> have concerns of, about um, filling these roles as people are retiring in the industry. Um, uh, at least people there were the of the over 100 people who took the survey for stormwater, zero percent of them were younger than age 30. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I've met people, young professionals in the industry that are younger than that, but 
Well, it's and not the, that many. And at your stormwater conference, there were a lot of people, younger people than I expected. There. Yes. I was really surprised by I that. do think it's growing in the industry. I did speak to some professionals um, who were very optimistic about it um, mm-hmm. because they, the young professionals that they have met are extremely enthusiastic and passionate mm-hmm. about the topic. So it's, I think it's about finding, um, they've also said it's about finding the right person. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, it just goes to your point about educating them younger and younger and teaching them about the opportunities there because the, you know, the, the more young people that know about opportunities, especially in stormwater and erosion control, the more people will come into the industry and, and there hopefully won't be um, that gap in, yeah. in knowledge. And who, who will train them if they're all retired? Yeah, and just to tag on to that, one of the other issues is not not only do you just need the bodies, but you need the skilled yeah. labor, like mm-hmm. right. So like you That's do right. need that educational yep. background That's with right. it too. Mm-hmm. You do need the yep. people who have the 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 know how. Not just finding people, finding qualified people. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, exactly. And in the water quality industry, again, we have the same the same kind of trend with ages. We had 80% of people over the age of 50. Um, And, you know, in water quality, those tend to be, because I think 47% of the respondents, we had about 103 people, I think, 47% were dealers or contractors. And so these tend to be like family-owned businesses. And a lot of the owners, 48% of people were in executive management. So I would take that to mean like the owners of these Mm -hmm. companies Mm -hmm. who, you know, they're gonna be retiring. So a lot of times they leave, they're kind of like transitioning their um, staff, who's often their children or whatever, to take over the business. But, you know, I, we talk to a lot of dealers with our Dealer of the Month um, future and whatnot, and a lot of people say that, um, I've, I've talked to a few dealers who say, like, we can hire someone who doesn't have any experience and, or no, like, water treatment skills. They just have to want to be here and they want to have, they have they have to want to learn mm-hmm. because you know WQA has a ton of resources for certification and education and things like that and um, that's how a lot of these people got started to begin with with no experience they just kind of work in the field and learn and stuff so um, I don't know it might be I feel like it's probably different with you guys because it's like a lot of engineering and mm-hmm. it requires a lot of formal education yeah. but a lot of the water quality industry can be done in the field and the people you know they'll hire people with no experience but with a strong desire to learn and that's um, sometimes all it takes for maybe them maybe that just bodes well yeah it, it bodes better for uh, that sector well I mean a lot I mean you know we have questions on the survey about their biggest challenges and still a lot of them is finding yeah. quality uh, staff and I think well, for on our our survey as well, it's like it seems like all of these things are like kind of related. You know, like the budgets seem to be a little low for these companies, and a lot of these companies are or a lot of these people are in a lot of associations, both national and regional. But a lot of them also don't go to any trade shows or conferences because they just can't afford the travel expense or the time off of work or whatever. So it can be hard to make time for that education yeah which is part of the problem and speaking of the association side one of the one of the cool things that I know well I guess not cool but another like just curious thing that I noticed is that in terms of membership 
um, two associations. So the two big ones are AWWA and, and WEF for, um, for for our industry. And uh, AWWA was thirty four percent of this, and then WEF WEF was like twenty eight percent. But then when you looked at who what what shows people attend. 18% attended ACE, which is the AWWA show, and then 33% attend the attend WEFTAC. Mm-hmm. So th- there's like a reversal of like membership and what a show yeah. you attend. But then also very curious is that there is a 27% of people attend other trade shows than what we have listed here, uh-huh. um, which to me says there's a ton of regional shows and there's a ton of shows that we're not going to yeah. that we, we're not aware of. Um, and I'd love to know more. So if you, like, tell me some of the shows that you go to. We did have some things in here where people could fill in which which associations and stuff they were uh, going to and the events they were going to. But uh, please let us know about some more events and stuff so that we can get them on our calendars and we can follow up and mm-hmm. learn a little bit more about our industries as well. Yeah, I had the same. I had not the same. I had the opposite <laughs> results in mind. We have 50% of respondents are a member of the National Water Quality Association and 39% of, or sorry, 35% of people go to the WQA show. Oh, interesting. However, we do have 27% who go to or who are members of regional water quality associations and 26% mm-hmm. go to regional WQA shows probably because you know there's less travel required yes. you don't have to that fly across the country yeah. um but yeah like you said we also we have a lot of um people who wrote in other uh shows that they go to and it's interesting to see some of them are water related and some of them are not directly water related but like green build for example which we just mm-hmm. had here in Chicago last week um definitely some water angles but not directly water related so yeah definitely let us know what shows you're finding valuable yeah mm-hmm. um i wanted to bring up one more thing before we move on um so i if you read my editorial letters you maybe you notice that i talk about climate change um i was just saying this past week how i don't even know which extreme weather event to focus on anymore because there are so many of them in such quick succession. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spoke to some industry professionals about their take on how climate change is affecting the stormwater and erosion control industry. And um, Diane Smith, uh, who's president of East Coast Erosion Control, had a really interesting take, I think, more from the business side. And she said that um, climate change is both good and bad because she said that it creates a need for her products Mm -hmm. and erosion and sediment control but it also is depleting the resources that are needed to to make these products Mm -hmm. so um i just thought found that a really fascinating take because i hadn't really thought of it that way and i hadn't really heard it spoken that way um, a lot of industry professionals I speak to are just uh, showing concern mostly mm-hmm. um, uh, because, but it, it is, it's true, it's creating more of a need yeah. mm-hmm. for the industry. Yeah. And the industry is growing and I don't, I don't, couldn't, I couldn't say for sure what the correlation there is, but it's, it's there. Well, and just to add another layer to that, if, like, y- y- you're, it is. It sucks that like that's 
right. becomes the need. Yeah. Right. Like we've had a disaster, so we need this product. But, but then you also run into the situation that a community has to also purchase this product. So then right. you get a burden on taxpayers, mm -hmm. and the money that was spent on that could have been spent somewhere else, maybe in a system. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it creates a whole new, a whole it other does. layer of it layer totally of does. difficulties there. So, um, yeah, I. I one of the guys that I talked to for my state of the industry said that there have been a lot of extreme weather events and unfortunately that's been a big driver for our mm -hmm. products this year. Mm -hmm. Like that we just had to replace a lot of broken stuff or we had to um, uh, upgrade stuff that just wasn't, wasn't cutting it in these extreme weather events and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And wow. It's just an unfortunate reality of, exactly. the, uh, of the times. That's so true. Yep. All we can do is deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, okay, so um, did you want to add anything else? No, I think that's about it. Um, this episode, we wanted to share with you an interview that we conducted with Riggs Ackleberry. He is president and CEO of Origin Clear. Um, we we're talking to him about water reuse and recycling um, as water scarcity becomes a bigger issue, um, something that we've definitely brought up in the podcast before. So. Here is that interview. Okay, so it's um, Lauren, Amy, and Bob here, and we're talking to Riggs Ackleberry um, from Origin Clear about um, water reuse. Um, so, Riggs, can you first start by telling us a little bit about your role? Well, you know, I'm the CEO and uh, chief bottle washer of Origin Clear, um, which we founded. Uh, we're the 10-year overnight success. We founded it in 2007, went public in 2008, and um, it's been an interesting road. Great. Um, so I guess um, talk, uh, starting off a little bit more broadly, um, can you talk a little bit about why water reuse is an appealing option for wastewater treatment and what kind of benefits it provides? Well, as, as you know, uh, there's just a couple leaders in the world for water reuse. Um, Israel is really amazing in that respect. They're approaching 90% recycling. And that's really because of a very, very, you know, it's almost like for them it's um, – you know, DEFCON. This is like we got to have water, and uh, in fact, it's a major force for peace over there. In America, we have a different situation. Obviously, we don't have the the government is not united behind infrastructure at this time. Um, mm -hmm. And furthermore, there's a fundamental issue that I see with municipalities recycling. We see in San Diego the whole toilet to tap initiative has got all kinds of of static and you know. Uh, NIMBY type uh, concerns and people are disgusted and all this stuff. And I think it's a slow process. Um, municipalities in general are happy if they treat the water um, and then to ask them to reuse it is only for the most advanced among them. Um, and this is why the solution is the new um, trend, the mega trend towards decentralized or uh, you know, self-reliant water treatment, which is appearing now. Yeah, so you, you touched a little bit on kind of how this is a trend. What, what are some of the other drivers behind that trend beyond just like water scarcity? Is it, uh, or is that the primary trend there and reason? Well, th there's a couple of trends. Um, there's a very good um, uh, research piece that um, 
Lux Research did back in the early 2016, where they said, look, the U.S. infrastructure for water in general uh, is going to require $250 billion to fix. It's not going to happen. So what's happening is that municipalities are turning away um, commercial and industrial and agricultural users um, increasingly because they know they have a compact to clean residential. They're not going to stop that anytime soon. But they are turning away, especially the difficult polluters that cause trouble in their, in their uh, treatment systems. The, technically speaking, the real issue, according to Lux, is that, you know, sewage or, 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 or waste water has to travel on high pressure lines and those are bursting. Uh, so it has to go, they can only receive water on gravity fed lines, which has to be then treated water. So now the municipality is saying, hey, we can only take treated water from a factory, um, from uh, a, a concentrated animal farming operation or, or whatever, or, or housing development. And now those, those people are saying, okay, wait a minute, um, you only want treated water, so now I'm treating the water. Why don't I reuse it on site uh, to water the golf course? And now I'm saving huge amounts of money, especially in water scarce areas, but even in regular areas. We, we have a division, Modular Water, which delivers these uh, compact prefab systems for uh, a major audience for us is these real estate developments where the HOA is going to have an on-site water treatment system. And um, it's, the ROI is as little as two years for water-scarce areas like California, but in any case, it's you know, three, four years is great ROI on an investment like that. Mm-hmm. Um, backing up to something you said a little bit earlier, um, you mentioned a reluctance for people to embrace the, the toilet-to-tap mentality, um, but in some places that's a kind of a viable means for water reuse. Um, is there a way that you think that you can make that type of treatment more appealing for both municipalities and for residents? Well, true. Okay, so he- here's my point of view. You know, I learned in the dot-com, because I came out of the whole high-tech thing, which is work with the enthusiasts, not the conservatives or the skeptics, right? So what you want to go for is where is the maximum growth opportunity? Where is the maximum change occurring? Um, it's clear that the minute you move to decentralization, to someone having to do their own water treatment, you instantly have a recycling opportunity. It's much, much, much easier than trying to convince a municipality to do it, not because they don't want to, but because they have major structural issues because they're operating at such scale. I mean, you know, the Hyperion plant down in El Segundo is, is pumps through unbelievable amounts of water, and to then start recycling it, we're like, oh, whoa, now what do we do with the return pipes? I mean, it's, it's a whole logistical issue. And whereas you can go out to the margins, and now, A, there's an economic incentive to do so. B, it's much, much easier to do so. It's built right in. It's a relatively simple thing. So we like um, simply going for the, the easier win of and, – and, and furthermore, it's really the trend. Um, we're not going to solve – you know, the stats are <clears throat> that, you know, 70% of the wastewater in the world is not treated at all. Uh, 80% in, of all sewage is not treated. In some countries, 95%. It's not going to be fixed, fixed by more big billion-dollar central systems, especially in developing countries, but also here in the U.S. because of issues, uh, uh, consensus issues in government. So what we have here is a reality that central systems 
are not going to be the solution. Uh, any more than, you know, landlines were not the solution in Africa, uh, mainframes are not the solution for computing, um, you know, uh, and, and more uh, big energy peak, peaker plants are not the solution, whereas solar is. So in all these cases, investing more in major central billion-dollar systems, and I could mention, you know, uh, rapid transit, uh, high-speed rail lines versus self-driving cars. The examples are all over society where things are being solved at the micro level, not at the mega level. Okay. Now, and we talked a little bit about the municipal side. So focusing a little bit more on the industrial and commercial side, can you speak to why more facilities haven't, like industrial and commercial facilities, haven't moved over to water recycling and reuse? Um, you spoke a little bit about, you know, cost as a barrier to entry. Are there any others? I think that the minute they are stuck with the problem, then they're incentivized. I, I can tell you right now that, that we are dealing with a very high demand. Um, uh, you know, our, our new division, Modular Water, which we only acquired in, in late June, um, was an existing uh, player in the space with, with IP for, for doing these, these compact and I don't want to hype that. That's not the purpose. But the point I'm making is that we have a great deal of, of demand uh, mm -hmm. coming in over the transom. Without even promoting, um, Dan Early, the, the head of that unit, is nonstop. And we are basis of design on virtually all of these. So what's happening is that, that um, in a way, industrial, commercial, agriculture users are increasingly stranded assets because – of the breakdown of infrastructure in the U.S. And because they're stranded assets, they're going, oops, we're going to have to solve this. And, and right away, the recycling becomes a, a, a reality. The point I'm making is that um, recycling is not a problem when decentralization occurs, but it is a problem when the municipality has to do it because they're operating at such scale. So it's like most things where we'll be forced to do it when we really have to do it. <laughs> I think that's the natural trend. Uh, you know, having said that, let's take a look at Florida. We have a lot of uh, coming out of Florida right now where, um, you know, there's water table issues. And so water use is a major, major issue. And 60 to 75 percent of the systems we're quoting in Florida right now involve uh, a water recycling component. That's a big, big leap from the general national 1% recycling number. So, so it, it's happening, but, you know, it's not happening uh, sort of a – it's not yet a tsunami, but it's definitely a trend in places like Florida and, of course, the Sunshine States, Cal you know, California, Arizona, and, um, and New Mexico, et cetera, where, where water, you know, uses is, is a scarcity, right? Um, so Florida is a special case because they've got, you know, seawater invasion on the water table, et cetera. But um, you, you have uh, just local issues driving re, uh, recycling, um, the, the fact that people are being left to fend for themselves. And even if they're not being left to fend for themselves, it's a really, really easy financial calculation to go, you know what, three years from now, this thing pays for itself and it's profitable from there on out. And we don't have to worry about what the uh, water district is going to do with prices because we'll be so much less dependent for Gulf irrigation, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, how, how do you expect this approach to water recycling to change over time? Um, is it just going to? I mean, you're talking about a trend already. I imagine it's going to continue that um, 
trajectory. Um, or, what else are you expecting, I guess, in that water recycling and water reuse area? Yeah. Um, look, I think that, that uh, in a way, you know, what, what happened with solar was very, very interesting in that, you know, had, you had early on, you know, during the Carter eras, it was very, very inefficient. It happened very slowly, required a lot of government support. You know, then Reagan kind of pushed back on all that stuff. Now, what happened was, A, technology took off so that we had some major improvements in cost. And B, we saw in the last, um, you know, a few years, the emergence of innovative ways to finance these things, right? So Solar City, uh, for example, made it possible to, to for people to to allow someone else to put the, the solar panels on their roof and they wouldn't have to go out 23 or $25,000 on their, on their um, you know, home equity line of credit. They would just be handled by Solar City and the person would pay less and everybody's a win-win-win. So really it's a combination of two things. Uh, and a third thing is regulation. Uh, you know, we've seen the solar that it went up and down based on the amount of uh, encouragement, financial uh, subsidies, uh, rebates, uh, regulatory freedom, et cetera, whether or not the utilities would allow it. Um, that third aspect is not really a factor with water because municipalities are really asking industrial, commercial, and agriculture users to go to take care of their own water. So there's not really a barrier there. At the same time, there's, not, there's no real rebate. So it's kind of a neutral issue. But the first two are important, right? Number one, technology. There are new technologies. When you decide to treat water at your point of use, well, then it's got to be something that the janitor can handle. You can't have a water expert managing that thing because then you're going to have a lot of expense. So they have to be really, really easy to, man to, to run, a lot of automation. And B, they have to be uh, prefab. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're offering that kind of thing. And I think that there's going to be more and more of this sort of prepackaged, you know, really, really simple Internet-connected systems that, the, the, that can be operated under a service contract by the water provider water service provider, and also managed locally um, by the facilities manager, and that's the technology side. On the, on the financing side, you know, we're seeing the emergence of pay for performance, which is a lot like the solar PPAs, um, you know, power purchase agreements, but in this case, you know, a, a user committing to multi-year um, payment, and if they're credit worthy, that works well. Now, what about the uncredit worthy or the less credit worthy? And that's where we are working, in fact, on a uh, – this is a long-term project where we have a cryptocurrency solution that is going to address funding of, uh, one, of infrastructure-type uh, investments below a million dollars using crypto crowdfunding. But that's, that's really a long-term thing. So really what we're seeing in the, in the, in the immediate term is properly, you know, uh, you know good, um, good credit – uh, users getting these pay-for-performance things are able to put it into an operating budget and not in the capital budget, and that seems to help a lot. Um, and and I think between those two major factors, we've, we're going to we're going to be able to enable the, uh, what I think is an inevitable process. Yeah. So just to follow up some more on that financing side, we have been hearing a lot more about. Uh, P3s and public-private partnerships, is that something that you mm -hmm. expect could be a trend for water reuse with water municipal reuse. side of things? Would that, would that even occur, do you think? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the outsourcing, the last I saw the outsourcing market was about $2.5 billion in the U.S. Uh, and growing about, I think, 15%. So it's, it's good. It's not huge. Um, 
and I, I think it's I think it's inevitable. We, we for example, um, you know, uh, our subsidiary in Texas did the um, City of Horizon Texas, right? So Horizon Texas is 100% being managed by uh, private, and there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I think it's it's a piece of of the of the whole, but I think it's going to be dwarfed by the um, self-reliant, you know, sort of um, decentralized, truly decentralized water treatment. I think that's going to be um, the, the big, big thing. And, you know, here's what's interesting financially for the water industry, which is, look what happened in computing. Uh, when it went from mainframes to PCs, you know, trillions of dollars of market value were created by actually dispersing the computing away from central because, you know, you just have a lot more points of use and it adds up to a lot more money. And now we have these smartphones, you know, so I have a $1,000 smartphone that's more powerful than 20 mainframes were once. So, but what, the point I'm making is, now, of course, I use it for, you know, Facebook, but, um, but you know, w what I'm saying is the market size is vastly larger when you go atomic, right, when you go into uh, a much more granular situation versus a, a, a central. And so I think that this is a really bullish thing for the water industry. It's also really, really good for the um, both treatment rates, which are way too low worldwide, and the recycling rates, which are very, very low in places like the U.S. All right. Thanks for listening to that. And, and thank you to Riggs Eckleberry for speaking with us. Um, it was a good conversation. And um, if you have any thoughts or responses to that, please shoot us an email. Um, it's talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. Correct. I was unsure. <laughs> you, got, yeah. you didn't need to be unsure. <laughs> I had it. So um, I think that about wraps up this issue, or this <laughs> article. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're trying to wrap yeah, up issues. issues. Um, in the stormwater issue this month, in addition to state of industry, like all our issues, there are write-ups on our top projects. So um, be sure to look for those. On uh, water quality products, we also have our state of the industry, so take a look at that. Um, we In January, we'll have a little bit more in-depth look at the um, kind of the outlook on 2019, because um, I know stormwater solutions and water waste, I just have some more in-depth um, information in their December issues, but WQP, that'll be in January, so keep an eye out for that. We also have a feature on our top dealers in December, which is a roundup of our 10 dealers of the month from the year. Um, so we've got some more insight from them, some survey response or questionnaire responses from them, some extra pictures and fun stuff. So check that out. And for Water Waste Digest, similar to Stormwater Solutions, we have our state of the industry report, but also top projects. Um, the, this year we've added a map that will kind of showcase where each project was located throughout the country, which is kind of cool. So you can kind of see um, the spread of things. Uh, yet again, this year, Arizona just continues to really drive yeah. a lot of those top projects because yeah. they do a lot of really great work down there. Um, and then also, we, I have WWD AR on several pages. Um, we have a video from our top project ceremony where I interviewed a couple people a um, couple of the winners, um, so do check that out. Um, there's going to be some extra photos for some of them, some other videos. Um, 
from this year and last year. So do check out WWDAR on, on those pages. Uh, it describes kind of how you can go about doing that and getting some digital content with your uh, physical magazine. So cool, cool. All right. See you next month. I think that wraps it up. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.